Welcome back, guys. This is the 63rd episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. It's our first installment of 2024, and I'm really looking forward to what I think will be a very special year for the show. Before we get started, just a reminder that you can, of course, follow us on Instagram at, at underscore air podcast, or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast. I've also got a very irregular Substack newsletter that I promise to try harder with this year. You can subscribe to that at airpodcast.substack.com. On to this month's guest, who is a personal favorite of mine, Canadian producer, composer, and sound artist, Tim Hecker. Best known for albums like Radio Amour, Rave Death 1972, Harmony and Ultraviolet, and his most recent project No Highs, Tim has always been interested in going beyond the superficialities of ambient, preferring to craft music that challenges, confuses, enthralls, and excites. His creative process reflects this, often including bleeding channels, feedbacking pieces, pitch shifting, noise, and distortion. His live shows, meanwhile, are flooded with darkness or cloaked in fog. In this conversation, Tim and I discuss his musical philosophy and love of creative and artistic dissonance and the inherent challenges in making music that isn't always easy. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to speaking. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start actually with something that you said in, I guess, a rather old interview. Now, it was around the time that Love Streams came out. And you talked about how you typically work in this sort of constant state of despair or insanity or like feeling like you've made the worst thing ever, but you actually like that because the intensity in questioning yourself kind of helps push you creatively. So is that still how you're working these days? I would say that that's like a bit like melodramatic teenager kind of, (laughs) (laughs) uh, like tortured artist kind of cliche. I think 
Sure. I think I've probably like evolved a little bit where I'm not like relying on despair or maybe I don't know what was going on at that point, but <laughs> I do think that making music that, you know, is fulfilling to oneself over a period of years uh, has to require being lost a little bit by definition. Uh, otherwise you're just repeating the, the kind of hamster wheel of things you've, you know, developed over your life and I think being lost is a little bit of that but I think also it doesn't need to have despair you know <laughs> it's always hard I, I, I can't say making music's easy for me but um, I I keep you know being pulled back into doing it so um, I am like still I guess you know drawn by that kind of mystery of like what can come out of your studio sure um, I mean for me I totally understand the need to be like a little bit nervous or have some sort of self-doubt because it makes me work harder but I also find there's definitely limits to that like the intensity you mentioned is something I actually really dislike yeah I mean for sure it's definitely uh I mean having euphoric moments when you're writing music uh, is like, you know, great. And I would say probably essential or, you know, um, I don't know. It just that doesn't, you need, you need to feel something when you make it mm. and whether that, you know, is valid, um, you know, two weeks later when you don't listen to what you've made, cause half the time, at least it's probably not the, you know, as maybe transgressive or, um, developed or euphoric as you you hope it would be but i mean you still i think we need that that seed of a feeling mm. uh, that's that's challenging or you know something there so is making music or i guess being creative in general is that ever easy for you you know you mentioned this euphoria but um is it always sort of having that challenge underneath it all well i think i can go and you know go into the studio or work with like a, a keyboard or a guitar and you know do the thing i've done over years which is kind of muscle memory um and i can make music that i enjoy um and i tend to do that a lot of the time but i'm also you know trying to explore a lot and uh see where that goes and not really go to my default um you know chord progressions or mm -hmm you know, loop pedals or, or software kind of interface. I mean, it doesn't, it's a little bit of all that. So there's like, sometimes it's like comfort food day, you know, you make like some kind of soup, you know, it's kind of like that um, with music. And some days you're, you know, doing molecular foam gastronomy. I don't know. <laughs> I read that when you find a kind of motif that you like, a rhythm or a melody, you sort of repeatedly improvise with it over and over again. And then you kind of have this pile of hundreds of pieces and then you edit them down from there. Yeah, I mean, I think the general, like, I think there's an approach I've done over a long period of time that's like kind of consistent is a, is a form of like, I would say like painting with sound that uses digital audio is like almost like a water, a porous watercolor paper or something that mm -hmm. um, I like improvising over things that I've made and I like the evolution and I like the layers and I like pulling them out and, and, and sculpting something and then composing it afterwards almost from those 
improvisations and um, not worrying too much about what this thing is when you're making it. Just kind of, um, yeah, like I just say losing yourself, but a little bit of that. Mm. In another interview, I think this one was about production and you said that you often will use like 24 channels of like bleeding, contaminated, overloaded feedbacking pieces that link to one another in this kind of layered way that you mentioned um, because you don't want to create something that's really just like one straightforward emotion. The best things are the ones that are confusing is what you said. Um, Can you speak a bit more about that? Yeah, I think the general gist is that like a lot of music writing is done linearly on a DAW type of platform like Ableton or Cubase or Logic or anything like that with the timeline going from like zero to five minutes and the songs like you add bits and you mute bits and Mm. and then it's done um i tend to like work almost backwards and just um make these little things and then sometimes expand out into longer form pieces um sometimes i compress them and time like time stretch them um sometimes I use a lot of a platform called Max MSP where I don't really operate on a timeline. So I'm just recording multi-track kind of improvisations of like anything from a few minutes to like half an hour Mm -hmm. and then just kind of pull things out of that and then write over top of that again and then multi-track that. And I, you know, I throw them into a, I guess a composing template and I tend to, um, right off of that almost from the starting point you know so I have all this material and it's um it's a lot more fluid and, and not so so much of a one of my feelings about modern music is a lot of it feels driven by like a click track like mm-hmm. the idea that a, a drummer or a, a bass player or guitarist has this like sharp metronomic click in their ear driving everything mm-hmm. so it's almost like this mechanized computerized deadened pulse and rhythmical timing that at least in live music a lot happens quite often but i just like don't want that meter or i like having things Mm. that drift out of time or are not dictated by like the almost tyranny of like a click or something like that Mm -hmm. in order to achieve that do you need to use this method or have you ever I don't know experimented with like limits in the sense of making only one or two pieces and then forcing yourself to use those and nothing else I've never really worked with a click track like I'm kind of bad with like like straight on the nose kind of rhythm um Mm. so I don't really have a lot of experience I like turn that off when I'm recording like I don't even want to hear the meter you know something and um so I I don't know. I'm like, I'm really bad with quantization and like <laughs> forcing things into a kind of pattern uh, sure. of rhythmical logic, I guess. So um, this sort of challenging uh, way that you like to work, does that seep into the other parts of your musical endeavors? Like, for example, with performance, um, does that, does that challenge exist as well? Or is that the time when the challenging part goes away? Yeah, I would say that that's like almost the easier part because it's like it's kind of about everything I'm saying right now. It's kind of mm-hmm. just like asynchronous, nonlinearity, um, 
phasing uh, things that don't quite mesh long duration time like loss of self through like sonic um, volume and just overload almost um, those are the kinds of things that I'm like over and over drawn to um, I've like sometimes walked that back and I like just my last album is quite rhythmical and quite metronomic almost like and mm -hmm. so you know you have to like challenge yourself and not just say i'm like the the ambient drift person or something you know like it's like mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's like almost a prison in and of itself you know and so i like try to challenge even the things i'm saying right now i'm just like oh that's you know tim that's like half bullshit because you like you know <laughs> i've done situations where you have had rhythmical anchoring and stuff like that so i don't know when you said earlier, when you said um, losing sense of self through like sonic intensity, um, what did you mean by that? Uh, I just think that like density and volume have this this way of like becoming liquid in a, in a space and becomes like almost like a you know a kind of like almost healing water or something like that. That um, uh, when it's like the right volume, like hopefully not too threatening or not too loud, but you know, almost like womb-like or something like that, it becomes mm. uh, takes on a a character. It's like realigns the body cells or something. Feels like that. Sounds a bit mystical, but I don't. <laughs> it I don't does. Know. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I read that when you first started performing, um, you would play sometimes in the complete darkness as a way to make it just about the sound um, and sort of create this really intense experience in that way. Is that kind of what you meant as well? Yeah, I come back to like darkness over and over. It's like it's something that I just feel has no limits in terms of its ability to heightened music and um you know i almost do i almost do like a, a collaboration with a visual artist and then i go back to almost like negation of visuality and like n no vision you know no light mm -hmm. situation um almost as like um a cleanse because they're both fantastic but obviously it's like we're in a time where unquestionably it's like the dominance of the eye in, in terms of sense perception mm -hmm. in our society mm -hmm. music is undervalued and the ear is like denigrated in some ways and you know if for a moment music allows the chance to remember like tone and melody and the primacy of those things um and so yeah the 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 dark is a is a chance to amplify that, in my opinion. Um, uh, light is fantastic, also, but then it almost like it's a bit more prescriptive in uh, like almost the affect or the kind of way in which you feel something uh, when you're listening to music. Is that also the reason why you often use fog in your shows as a way to kind of like incapacitate people or just make them like really in tune with the moment that they're in? Yeah, it's not incapacitate. It's it's like it's like <laughs> Sorry. it's like yeah, that's like um just try to um to create a more like uh ethereal space that allows music to have a, a different meaning, you know. Um mm. and yeah, it's another route. Like fog is a beautiful art form. It's a beautiful sort like I wish I could work with some of the, you know, higher end like 
Japanese fog artists that have made these like fantastic spaces with like almost liquid air, you know, versus using some of the more conventional like entertainment hazers and things like that. I didn't know that there was such thing as a fog artist. Like in my mind, when I'm thinking about fog, there's just one way to do it, really. <laughs> no, there's definitely like uh, artists, at least J of Japanese province. I know a couple that work with fog and um, yeah, fantastic. So what has usually been the response to some of these shows that are maybe a bit more challenging with the dark or the fog? Um, do you find that people are receptive to that? I think with anything, there's there's always a percentage of people that are, you know, feel affronted or like whether it's through volume or like not feeling, um, you know, feeling like constrained. I think that's it's always going to be a percentage that it's not for them and that's OK. Uh, but generally, yeah, so it's 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 OK. I don't know if you've been to this space in Berlin called Monom. I don't know how you pronounce it. Monom. Um, it's the 4D sound space and like often when they have performances there you can't even really see where the artist is standing like you're just in this room where you can't really see anything um, and I did like it but I found it very disarming at the beginning like I found it quite confusing and it took a while for me to get used to like not really having anywhere to look if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's kind of the point, you know, in some ways. I almost, I think, worked with them a few years ago. But yeah, I mean, that, that type of, you know, multi-dimensional multi sound systems are fantastic to get a similar kind of thing going, definitely. Mm, and so for you in that kind of moment, um, how is it for you to perform like that? I can imagine you maybe feel a little bit like protected almost. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it makes it more about the music and less about the kind of spectacle and the gestures and the kind of, you know, the dance of like the performer doing labor on stage. And it makes it more about sound, which is great, you know? And yeah, it's a different feeling for sure. When you have a, a stage, you know, and a audience filled with fog for sure. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit about when you do work with um, a lighting guy or a visual artist um what is that sort of collaboration like for you um i've done a few different things and they've all been like fantastic uh i once did uh i mean i almost call it like a Turellian kind of fog space in like probably around 2016 with an artist named marcel weber goes by mfo we made this you know ring almost like the performance was ringed with these horizontal bars of light that all had individual assignable color eyes that would you know just create this really fenced in light corral and the fog was quite um dense and uh used stadium hazers that put out massive amounts of smoke so it became like you could barely see your hand in front of you it was, mm -hmm. you know maybe a <laughs> bit too much even you know thankfully it was okay and you know there's no issues from that. Another time recently, I've been working with a Canadian Swedish artist named Vincent de Belval, who we've basically constructed this this very narrow horizontal bar going across behind the stage with fixed uh, ultraviolet and infrared pixels in it, and so it's almost like a like a you know, like a kiosk kind of sign or something like mm -hmm. the red and blue of open and closed, but like, or police lights or something like that it invokes a bunch of different things. But, uh, you know, we've been using it almost like as this, like a 
demonic, otherworldly ticker tape of, you know, languages and text and and patterns and things like that. That's like super austere, and uh, uh, I like it. I love it. It's been a it's been a great experience. So, is it the music that comes first for the for shows like that, or is it that the music is inspired by the kind of visual setting that you're creating? The music ostensibly comes first in the sense that some of it's written before this type of situation comes out, but it, it is a collaborative effort, and it does become more than one or the other, just, you know, just like, I don't know, films, like more than the cinematography. It's like a mm. bunch of composite, and it's like in that situation that design does mean a lot and adds a lot and informs the music even somewhat. Um you know, ultimately, it's a music-forward concert, so it's, um, you know, there's like parameters of limitation. Like, I don't want my silhouette very present. I w- want to be visible barely, but mm. that is the kind of like limit. And I think that then it's about a a psychic space that's created uh, in listening to that music and seeing the the mise en scène. You know. So is it tough for you to find um, lighting or other types of visual artists that are able to kind of understand that where you're coming from in that way? Um, like, has it been hard finding somebody that you like collaborating with? I mean, the the ones that I've worked with have like, I've been, you know, put in touch by friends in common or have approached me, you mm. know, it's been kind of almost effortless, I'd like to say that. But yeah, there's a sensibility, especially with lighting artists where... You know, they're used to, you know, someone comes off doing like an EDM show where they're like triggering 500 lasers and fire, you know, (laughs) stuff like that, where it's like it drives the spectacle. And it's like this is like a lot more understated and um, not as visual forward. It's, you know, it's it's a collaboration that's more, I would say, muted intentionally in some ways. It's made sense. And. You know, but it's also been because I've had uh, these types of connections with people that it's kind of understood from the start. I mean, to me, it sounds like maybe control is a, is a sort of factor in this. Like you just want the right setting for your music to be heard and understood as close as possible to the way you want it, if that makes sense. Well, I think, yeah, once you've you've shown up at a venue and there's, you know, a some dude that's just you know going off on the lights and it you know kind of ruins it almost for me it's just 
it makes it really bad and it doesn't feel like this is working as an experience it's like it's too much it's not about controlling the space it's just about like having art in all the aspects of the experience and so you know we live in a culture that's like driven by visuality and filming and instagram and it's like mm. of course it's got to be part of it you know and uh you can't really forget it or avoid it but it's just got to be something that really works with the music and makes uh the experience deeper not worse you know does it bother you that you have to think about you know instagram for example <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I, I accept the world for how it is, you know, it's like <laughs> sure. that, you know, good lament that the golden, golden, like eighties of, you know, recorded music, is, you know, still here, but I don't, it's, it's the way it is, you know, it's just, um, it doesn't mean you have to love it, but not super, uh, nostalgic or anything, it, mm. you know, it's a weird time, definitely where you know, in our society, music is not very important right now. Mm. And um, I think that's clear. And the way it's valued from, you know, how well musicians are paid from streaming to what they're paid for when someone syncs their music and the way that's valued and budgeted in the overall approach is just, it's, 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 it's taken for granted in some ways. And you know, seeing the writer strike and things like that, it's just like there should be more organization. I wish I was like a union kind of type of organizer, but it's definitely music needs that kind of um, that kind of alignment. And so would you say that the kind of music that you're making now is sort of a response to that in, in some way, whatever way that you whatever way that you feel you? No, I would, poli like politically or anything like that or culturally, not, I mean, somewhat, but I, I, I don't really make political art that's mm. like explicitly on the nose. I think that my music is almost like a more sacred, interior, personal thing. It's almost a way to, you know, I go in the studio, I make music so that I can express myself and I try not to get lost in the the temporality of like things as they are although obviously it informs it it's just i have it in a roundabout way i guess I, would mm. say. I mean i guess also like creativity and individuality is also like sort of a political statement yeah i think if you devote your life to an art form that's that's like you know possibly in decline that's that's a political statement that's you know you're you're going into a practice that you know has low prospects and it's difficult and uh that i think that's a testament to the the love of music or you know the art form you're doing and i think that i'm just assuming you come from you know being self-sufficient which i think is also a rare thing now in our society um but that that evokes like a kind of commitment and love for the work and the the object you're focusing on. Do you feel like you're more committed to this art form nowadays than ever? Uh, I've never, I always have like a, like a, an openness to it. I'm not like strident, like I'll do music till I die or something like that. I'm <laughs> always like, is this, do I still have something to say? You know, is there still a point to putting out a record? I, 
you know, I, I still think the answer is yes, but I'm like open-ended on that. And I don't, I try not to be careerist despite having a career ostensibly doing this. Yeah, I'm just grateful that it's worked out and um, that I've had the opportunity to do this for a living. I don't take it for granted. And, you know, almost every few years I like kind of do an album where I focus on like developing my sound or, you know, I take stock quite often and just see if this is something worth continuing in, you know? What does that sort of exploration of yourself generally look like or how does that work how do you how do you accomplish that I think it's just like a meditation and just a just a kind of just asking yourself big questions like is it worth continuing should I make an album you know what what kind of music should I put on it like what's the point have you done that before you know um I mean I'm not like one who's like tried to radically reinvent myself every album with some like alter ego or persona transformation. It's definitely been a slow evolution, um, but I still don't, I try to not fall back on the same musical tropes I do, you know, like I don't want to do a greatest hits of my own work at this point, <laughs> you know, I feel like there's still things to do. Something you talked about recently in relation to your latest album, No Highs, is that you don't want to contribute to like the Spotify music to study slash chill to playlist culture, um, that you want your music to be more upfront than that. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, I think it's what I was saying earlier about just the evolution and change in music, just that it's devolved in some ways, I would say, unfortunately, in the current you know, period. And one of the ways I think artists can survive is getting on playlists and things like that. And then there's almost a kind of, you know, a push. There's almost like an inherent playlist logic or genre aligning logic, you know, with um, making work. Not everyone does this, of course. It's not evident all the time, but I can catch myself, you know, thinking, oh, you know, it's like, should make more ambient music, you know, it's like always make this kind of antagonistic ambient. But if I was really like more playlist focused, I'd make this like chill out right. music that would probably get more listens and and um, and pop me up higher on the algorithm, thus making survival as a musician more viable, you know. Um, and so I catch myself all the time in that, you know, don't think about that. Just make sound, you know, and try to, you know, make it crazy and, and exciting and lose yourself and not know what it is when you're making it. Um, be confused about it a little bit. Do you worry that, you know, with this sort of playlist culture that um, art like yours, I don't know, and not that it won't be relevant, but that you're going to have to... Um, compromise your morals or your artistic vision in order to kind of survive? Well, I think relevancy is a kind of like drug or something. It's like you, it's like almost like the law of like change, like the Buddhist law of change is like the only guarantee is that things will change. Um, your relevancy as an artist is like guaranteed to wane. It's like, <laughs> there's no question about it. It's baked into its own internal logic. And so it's how you handle that and how you 
does your work require like baiting relevancy, you know, over and over? Hmm. Um, that can make like kind of a maudlin, uh, almost cringeworthy kind of um, desperation. Is it difficult for you to kind of stay that course of keeping yourself lost in your music and making things that are exciting and challenging? Uh, yeah, it's not easy. It definitely um, definitely isn't easy, but it's also fun. It's like I have a fantastic job where I make these crazy records. I get to travel the world, you know, when I want to. And, you know, I'm collaborating with fantastic choreographers or directors um, making music for a living. So it's kind of like the biggest joke how it's worked out. Um, I trained as an academic, you know, and I, I didn't pursue that um, in the end. I've had his gift, and I think that it's a struggle, of course, you know. It's, it's, but you show up at the studio every day, and you, you put in time where you think you're, you know, a fraud or, you know, no, ta no talent or you're losing mm -hmm. your guitar skills or keyboard skills. You don't remember which way the, the audio gets patched in or <laughs> how you work on software. Um, it's a challenge all the time. And, uh, but it's also a great one. I am super grateful for like the career that I, I didn't plan for, didn't really dream of, and I kind of stumbled into. On those days where you're in the studio and it's really hard and you feel like you don't know what you're doing, um, what is it that helps you get through that? Uh, I, I like meditate a lot now, like in probably past four years, I've like pretty much done it every day. Like usually when I get to the studio or in the morning and meditate, so I'm like a bit more grounded or mindful when I'm feeling that way. And I, I, I either just kind of let it go and, and work through it, or some days I'll just turn off the equipment and go outside and go for a walk or, you know, whatever, just um, not force it. So what artists or what kind of music would you say gives you the kind of feeling that you are hoping for in your own work? Like, if, if, you, if you know what I mean. Um, who do you listen to that makes you feel how you want people to feel when they listen to your music? Obviously, I come from like a tradition of many people that have made amazing work, you know. Um, I have peers that make amazing work, and it's like part of a deeper community of like artists that do this um, in a, I would say, a sympathetic mindset, you know. Um, I listen to a lot of music. I, I tend to go back to, um, you know, the classics or like, you know, I was talking about you with like lobotomy music recently, you know, just by mm -hmm. email and um, there's different moods you want out of things. And I, you know, I go back a lot to like, you know, things like gas, biosphere, like uh, basic channel recordings, uh, fluxion, mm -hmm. um, a lot of late 90s, I find, um, you know, rock music still like in the early 2000s, 2010s. And, you know, I came out of obsession with like British electronic music in the 90s and shoegaze and and indie rock and stuff like that um, as I was growing up as a teenager. And, you know, my tastes evolved. But um, I mean, lately I, I put on a lot of like Duke Ellington and... Um, early Coltrane and um, I don't know, stuff like that. I listened to like the recent Blonde Redhead record like a little bit last few weeks. I mean, I find that kind of nice that they're still doing music. 
I don't know. It's like all over the map, you know, but I, I wouldn't say I listen to like abstract electronic music um, most, you know what I mean? And so is there ever times where um, you, you were talking about this a bit briefly in your New York Times profile, and you mentioned that sometimes you do just want to switch off and have this sort of not spa music, but like background music. So is background music something that you also believe in, even if you don't necessarily want people to listen to your music as background music? Yeah, it's like a kind of a complex like almost um like kind of self-negating thing i said in that in that article which was like our world has become like more and more towards background music and Mm -hmm. i also like listening to background music (laughs) and here's some of my yeah i wouldn't (laughs) call some of those people background music like they make beautiful music you know Mm -hmm. it's just it's it it lacks the the veneer of the ego, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, you know, there's not so much of someone's thirst or fame or like hunger or appetite, you know, in the in the work. It becomes like almost like liquid, you know, and it's inviting and um, it's peaceful and calming and meditative. And um, I listen to a lot of stuff like that for sure. But it's just not something that, fuels your own music like that peaceful quality is not something you're searching for creatively (laughs) yeah i mean i was i went to this monastery and i talked to the the head monk and i said you know i i spent like five days there this summer and i was meditating and helping out with field work and chores and stuff and then during question period with the head monk i i said you know i rely my my livelihood is from making quite emotionally charged music. Mm-hmm. Um, as I get, as I meditate, I find I get more grounded, and I find that doing that doesn't seem as appealing, you know. And it's like almost like uh, like a hindrance or something to make this kind of like emo distraught music. <laughs> and he's like, you know, his what he said is like, could you make calmer music? Or he talked about like Erval Parrot and things like that, and it was uh-huh. like. You know, I'm still uh, <laughs> sitting with that, you know. It's like, um, you know, I don't know why I don't make, like, spa music. Like, <laughs> um, I don't know why I keep having to play these, like, dissonant chords or, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not playing, like, 12-tone music, but, like, I do like a little bit of dissonance in it. And I don't know why um, I don't align to the more harmonious end. Yeah, I'm still still unpacking that one. <laughs> I wonder if if you tried to make calmer music, the like challenge of that would be the dissonance that you're sort of missing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I got to try doing it, like do a spa record, maybe. <laughs> I've thought about it, but I just I don't know. There's something as like artists get older, they tend to make more like more. music without teeth and there's very few that like make more intense work as they age and i'm i'm drawn to that i'm like also the idea of late music like there's a resurgence like late music yeah late music adorno wrote about it you know um just the idea that there's a a winter of the soul where there's almost like this fruit of everything you've worked spent your whole life on you know, in our, our society, we, we value, like, youth culture and music. And, um, mm. 
you know, in classical music, there's a whole, like, discourse about, like, Brahms, I think Beethoven also. I can't remember who Adorno was writing about, but there's this idea that, you know, this wellspring that's that's there to tap into after the years. And that um, I like it. It, it kind of keeps me going, not, not to hit that late period, but to not make the kind of pablum music as you get older. That's the kind of... Um, dichotomy or, or conflict to have in in terms of like why don't I do spa music you know? <laughs> so, still working on it <laughs> so what are your hopes for how this kind of late late period evolves for you creatively like what do you hope happens in this stage in your career as you move forward uh I don't know I don't know if I'm at that phase yet <laughs> you're still <laughs> <I> young mean, <laughs> I'm 49, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I feel like uh, I don't really have uh, any hope. I, I just I just know that that's there as a kind of like, you know, something on the horizon that, that is like a guiding, you know, one of the guiding, uh, you know, inspirations to keep going, you know, in, in the kind of beginning of what you're talking about, like why... I continue doing this. It's a great opportunity, and it's a, uh, it's it's something to fight for, making uh, music a, a central role in our world, and continue to make beautiful music, and not just leave it to the, you know, wealthy uh, children of trust funds that can afford to do this as a vanity or cultural clout harvesting kind of pastime, but mm. you know, a deeper. Um, yeah, deeper kind of a passion and a, you know, a, a life choice, I guess. I don't know. Do you hope to keep challenging yourself in the way that we've been talking about for this conversation? Yeah, I think I think it'd be boring if it wasn't challenging to, like, you know, write something um, interesting in a, a period where we have this a great library of infinity of, you know, all of recorded music history. You know, uh, how do you... N- you know, why make music or how do you add to it? I still have the quaint idea of like making new things, you know, and, mm-hmm. and thinking about not just recycling the past or like pastiche or like like a kind of like neo-postmodern kind of uh, ironic disposition of the past, but like something still different, like a feeling that's new. Um, I'm still guided by that. You've been listening to Tim Hecker for AIR episode 63. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of the month, so check back in February for another episode. In the meantime, you can of course follow us on Instagram at, at underscore air podcast or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast. Thanks for listening and see you in February.